0: You are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of allah uh, the most gracious ever merciful uh peace be upon you all um it is a another uh session another uh, drive time show m- f- with myself, Zakaria, and my brother uh, Nosh Irwan. As-salamu alaykum. Warahmatullah. Peace be upon you. How, d- how are you brother? wa salam Alhamdulillah. By the grace of Allah, I'm good. Zakaria, how are you? Alhamdulillah. By the grace of Allah, I'm doing well. Um, thank you very much. It's been a while since I you know, spoke to you, as in face-to-face, of course, um, and especially in, in our studio here at uh, you know, Voice of Islam. Uh, I mean, uh, the weather isn't that well, but you uh, we know we're very excited to of course uh, present two very important topics for this hour, isn't it? Yep, you're right, Zach. Yeah, Although, yeah, the weather is gloomy, um, but our
1: spirits are uh, full of energy. Yes, definitely. Um, and mm. of, of course, the topics that we discuss here are very important mm-hmm. um, for everyone that tunes in, for everyone who is able to listen, um, the very important um, topics. Um, We should just get straight
0: into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, The topics that we will be discussing to you um, and for you to, you know, learn more and you can also get involved as well are uh, in the first hour, for those who are familiar to our show, they know that we usually split the two hours in two different segments, two different topics. The first one uh, for, you know, till till five o'clock we will be discussing about food addiction. Um, And, uh, you know, when it comes to addiction in food, it's always like the tastiest food and the tastiest foods are those which are processed, right? Most of the time. I mean, people, they tend to go to the easiest, the quickest and the tastiest, the more fat, the more sugar it has, the, the more tastier it feels like, right? So this is something that we will be uh, discussing in the first hour. And in the second hour, brother, what are we going to discuss?
1: <clears throat> in the second hour, we'll be discussing uh, regarding Ibn Arabi, mm-hmm. um, his work and how he had managed to do his research, etc. And of course, within his research between existence and non-existence specifically. But of course, that's coming on in the second hour. In the second hour, okay.
0: Wonderful. So, just to start off our first hour show, I would like to uh, you know quote a verse of the Holy Quran uh, where God Almighty states, "O ye men, eat of what is lawful and good in the earth, and follow not the footsteps <laughs> of Satan. Surely he is to you an open enemy." What do we learn from this verse? So, in this verse, Allah the Almighty commands
1: um, the believers, the Muslims, that um eat which is what is good for you eat what is lawful for you mm-hmm. um so we should obviously keeping this verse in mind you should keep in mind um what we eat yep. right first of all it should be lawful yep. it should be uh, something that is uh, you are allowed to eat yep. it's not prohibited mm-hmm. and also whatever Good is in the earth, of mm. course. Now, if we um, separate this and we talk, we also we're specifically talking about the processed, ultra processed foods. Yeah, um, of course, that may not be good for you. Mm-hmm. So, what Allah the Almighty is stating here is that eat what's good and lawful. Yep. Because if you don't, and if you follow the footsteps of Satan, of course, Satan is, is going to he's an enemy yeah. of the believers and he's going to take you to the wrong direction. Mm. So, we should keep in mind. Yep. because obviously our bodies itself it's a it's from God Almighty mm. and we should keep it healthy we should keep it um, uh, natural we should also
0: be mindful of yeah. what we eat I mean there's so much wisdom in Islam um, and the Prophet of Islam the holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him I mean in in numerous um, uh, you know of his sayings we find the way of eating and to this day to this day you know even the scientists they agree with what sort of diets he had and the advice that he has given and (coughs) one of the advice that I I mean look I'm not perfect Mm. I do sometimes think of it and I do try to follow it but I you know myself I should be trying more to follow that and if I do that I will have a really good diet in fact uh, you know I would have a balanced diet or at least the way I eat, right? So the Holy Prophet has said that, uh, you know, fill your stomachs, um, one-third of it with food, one-third, leave one-third for, uh, you know, beverages, water mainly, of course, and one-third for air. So do not fill your stomachs so much to the top that uh, you cannot even breathe, right? So that is when you're not allowing (laughs) your food to digest. So this is a... Uh, uh, uh something that the holy prophet has taught us but then you know people in, in uh, i think in japan um they have a concept called ikigai or one of the islands nearby japan i believe i'm not sure what exact location it is but they believe in the concept of ikigai which is also the same they have the same sort of concept and uh, you know um and in that specific area where they where they follow this rule okay that the holy prophet also has you know mentioned 1400 years ago they tend to live much longer much much longer yep. and they actually follow the verse that you've just mentioned uh, you know i quoted and you explained it yep. um that uh, you see we you know eat of what is good so what is good means anything that we know is bad for us is bad yep. anything which is good is good so uh, not processed food is good, right? But of course, you know, we will also, you know, we'll be explaining how you could balance it because for some people it might be very difficult because let's say they have, uh, you know, their entire life they've, you know, lived off from, you know, tinned foods or or, or processed foods, and which is easier for them because they cannot, uh, you know, make time to, you know, cook <coughs> processed fresh food. But the the, the key for, you know, to balance it out is to, you know, for example, have some processed food, but then, you know, eat some vegetables and 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 greens and and fruits as well, next to it as well. So, you know, if we look at the statistics, one in seven adults and one in eight children might be addicted to ultra-processed foods. And experts further suggests some products being consumed to be labeled as addictive and and we see that as well that you know when we eat those processed food it's always tasty most of the time it's tasty Uh, and that's why it is addictive as well and we we tend to take those kind of foods because it's easy for us right um but you know there's these these addictive foods um they are not rare i mean they are very common into our you know in the shelves that we find in in our uh you know in in the shopping uh centers or in in the shops right so these products include a range of items such as ice cream right fizzy drinks as well as ready meals ready meals lots of people they uh, use ready meals, yep. right? They think, okay, it's fine. I'm mean, having normal food, uh, but it's just you know ready-made, right? But even that is processed, and uh, these are just few, and there's so yeah. many others as well, isn't it? Yeah, right. And you
1: know clearly we are surrounded by all these ultra-processed foods um, in the supermarkets and stores. They're, they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, and rightfully, one might feel overwhelmed thinking about the trying to escape these foods. But we need to see, is it possible to find a moderate balance with these foods surrounding us everywhere? Mm -hmm. So what are the harms of this diet and what does Islam light upon this matter? So obviously we'll be discussing all this for the rest of the hour. Mm -hmm. But first, we need to bring it back for some of our listeners. They might not be aware, like what is exactly ultra processed foods? So... A lot of the foods we consume on a regular basis, they are considered to be ultra-processed. Mm-hmm. And um, according to the British Heart Foundation, ultra-processed foods typically have five or more ingredients. Okay. And furthermore, they tend to include many additives and uh, ingredients they are not typically used in home cooking, such as preservatives, sweeteners, and artificial colors and flavors. And in addition, these foods tend to have a longer shelf life. Hmm. That's why you see um, the tins and cans and they all, they have the preservatives in there. Yeah. So they can be preserved for a long time long and time, yeah. they can be kept in the shelves for long.
0: Yeah, I mean, it amazes you, right? So, for example, if you cook something fresh, you know, you get your fr- vegetables, your meat from the, from, from the shops and you cook something. Literally, you have to eat it in one or two days or three days, make maximum. But no, or,
1: maximum, if you freeze it, it'll be like for a,
0: a week or two weeks. Yeah. Um, if you freeze it, it'll, it'll, but that's again, it's frozen, right? Yeah. So you can, you can, but again, something which you just keep in your shelves or just in the normal fr- fridge, right? You have to consume it in like a few days, right? But then when you buy like tin stuff or something from the, you know, on the shelves, which, which we just, you know, uh, airtight or something like that, right? You, you get amazed, you know? You buy it in 2023, it's expiring in 2024, 25. <laughs> I mean, how does that work? <laughs> and uh, it's clearly, you know, it, it just like you just mentioned that uh, it has preserv- uh, preservatives, it has lots right. of things that is harmful for us. I mean, these are the things that keep the food uh, f- from, you know... Not getting expired, yeah. but then it's also <laughs> harmful for us. We don't understand that, but it is actually harmful. Yeah. But th- so like, We've talking about what it is, yeah. types of products, uh-huh. what exactly they are, where they
1: kept, mm. how long the longevity is, etc. But what are the effects of these foods and are they really
0: bad for us? I mean, you know, consuming these foods can take up a lot of space, which uh, could have been easily uh you know taking more nutritious foods and uh, the the thing that these foods do is that they raise uh the blood sugar higher than those foods that are minimally processed right yep. and uh, these foods are generally higher in calories and sugar which is bad for us um you know doctors they always you know when when you have some sort of like uh, issue diabetes or something like that they would tell us to you know uh, not to have carbs or not to have too much sugar, um, and uh, these uh, similar type of foods they also have a lower quantity of protein and fiber, which is also very important for us uh, to grow and, and to, to to digest for the foods and all and all that. So, so th- these foods overall, you know, they lead you to obesity, and obesity is one of the most. It, it is one of the causes for for cancer as well and yeah. other sorts of diseases <clears throat> so you know it leads to obesity it leads to diseases right so that is what uh you know uh processed food does um right. and it definitely is bad and these foods often you know contain pro uh, inflammatory ingredients such as carbohydrates um and unhealthy oils like corn oil um and the carbohydrates uh, are one of the primary factors that contribute to the inflammation. And for those with the developing or already developed uh, health conditions, uh, like I said earlier, you know, diabetes or obesity, um, for them, it is recommended by the healthcare professionals to avoid these foods. Just, uh, for example you've seen that online as well you've seen that in in videos where you know when you have a can of coke or or fanta or whatever you see how many spoons of sugar is used in that can right so um you know uh, for example one cup of regular soda um can often put to them uh, you know that th- 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 they reach the the limits of the daily sugar intake, actually, it, it exceeds, right? And sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we don't, uh, uh, you know, realize how much sugar we have taken. You know, maybe the quantity of sugar that we should be taking in a whole week's time, we take it in one day, yeah. right? So that is something we don't understand. But again, it's it's something which is delicious. That's why we mm. tend to, you know, neglect it, of course.
1: Yeah, not just delicious. I guess it's it has the addictive mm-hmm. aspect to it. Mm. And often, you know, um, for example, Coke, it, it has that element to it that it becomes really addictive. And you just want to uh, just drink the whole can in one sitting and just yeah. in one take. So, you know, constant consumption has also shown a connection to the development of chronic illnesses. Mm -hmm. So apart from obviously diabetes, obesity, and all the other negative health factors that it contributes to, um, it also affects like um, illnesses, etc. And according to a study conducted in 2022, 72% of the participants tested, it showed that a positive correlation between ultra processed foods and the risk of diabetes. And that's like quite significant. Wow. And in 72% of the participants, as consumption of ultra-processed foods increased, the risks of diabetes also increased. Okay. And the study also showed consumption of ultra-processed foods increases the risk of diabetes by 12%. Wow. These numbers are especially alarming, you know, when considering hmm. how easy access to ultra-processed foods is it for is. a general population. And,
0: and And when you go to the shops, right, it's actually cheaper.
1: The normal I was about to mention that it is <laughs> if you compare it to the, the natural products
0: and natural fruit and vegetables yeah. it is it's quite uh, like it's quite cheaper it, it is much cheaper and of course you know you want to go for the cheapest version cheapest food and something that you can cook in you know, instantly you see it's it's very frustrating right mm. um, why is it te- made cheaper it should be s- more expensive Right, mm. so l- so less, less people buy, less people it. buy it, less but, people get into you know the obesity and diseases all of that. So I think it's concerning, I guess. It's concerning. Yeah. If but, it is possible, then mm-hmm. I think you know governments they should make uh, the natural foods more cheaper, mm-hmm. more available for the people than than you know processed foods. And um, I mean, it's it's something very very concerning, of course. I mean, these foods are also very hard to avoid as well. You know, uh, you know, we are constantly surrounded by. Uh, I-, I call them si- uh, silent killers. Hmm. It is a silent killer, right? It's yeah. a, it's it's like a, a you know a slow poisonous foods. Hmm. You know, you're poisoning yourself slowly, slowly. You don't realize that So many people are having so many uh, different sorts of diseases, or you know, they get ill. Uh, such I- I- in such an easy way that you know, let's say, hundred years ago, or hundred fifty years ago, or or you know, our forefathers, right? They never had these diseases, right? They didn't get cancer easily, or they didn't get you know, you know, uh, diabetes or all that. That's yeah, the because rate of obesity was. Quite lower. Quite lower.
1: century then, ago or so. Because they were eating natural
0: They were eating foods, natural foods. It wasn't processed foods. Yeah. It's not only about our activities. It's all about the food first, then the activities, mm. right? So sometimes, you know, people might say that, okay, why? Okay, our activity, we got busier as well. So we need to have these kind of foods because we don't have time for, for cooking all that. But that's also an excuse because lots of people, they, um, who have a busy schedule, Right they uh, they make meal preps for example in the fitness industry or people who are in, in sports right so athletes they prepare their meals for two three days right so let's say they instead of like spending every hour uh, every day one hour or two hours they would spend two or three hours once a week and this um you know, uh, this will last them for four or five days, right? So this is more convenient and plus you stick to a a balanced and and, and, and healthy diet, of course. Now, um, there are, of course, endless other factors to consider when, dis- you know, discussing processed foods. You know, finances being one of the leading causes, people prefer, uh, you know, ultra processed foods uh considering the fact that a can of processed soups right you know i thought actually you know soups are healthy but which is affordable uh for for example for struggling parents in contrast to a long list of fresh ingredients to make for the soups um you know they eliminate these processed foods uh for our diet is not only impractical it's also impossible um it's it's something You know, literally, even when we think that the shelves, when we have like soups, right, uh, which are ready, you just have to pour pour hot water in it and it's ready. Even that, you know, when we think it should be healthy, but it is actually not healthy because, again, it's processed, it's made in such a way that it it can last longer. Um, And in addition (coughs) to the finances, Noshirwan, the abundance of, ultra processed foods in the market makes uh, the elimination of these foods from our diets completely uh, or simply not not possible Uh, it becomes very very difficult for us uh, because it's always available it's it's in our display it's it's there right Um, and and it's and and every it has become a habit of majority of the people to have um you know these uh these easy to go foods right so um what do you think what are what 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 is the solution how do we then balance it how how can we get into a balanced diet how can we uh eat from the good that God almighty has you know uh, commanded us
1: yeah so great for this obviously you need to, we need to look at first and foremost the teachings of islam. Yep. Um, because that should be our guiding principle mm-hmm. um, for our daily lives. Yep. So Islam actually speaks on food consumption. And it also sh- uh, shines a guiding light on food consumption like and tells us why it's significant to be careful of what we're putting into our bodies. So I want to present a quote here um, from the book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community. He mm-hmm. states that, It should be understood that according to the Holy Quran, the natural state of man is intimately related to his moral and spiritual states, so much so that even his eating and drinking habits affect his moral and spiritual states. That is why the Holy Quran emphasizes the physical cleanliness and physical moderation for prayers, inner cleanliness and devotions. After careful consideration, one concludes that this is the true philosophy, and the physical organs have great effect on the soul. Mm. So you know, it shows the link that your physical appearance, your physical moderation, whatever however uh, you adapt your body to, it also affects your spirituality, okay. your soul. So it's every teaching of Islam. It has much a deeper understanding. Obviously, once you contemplate on on the teachings of Islam, okay, and all the commandments that, uh, that we have. Yeah. through the Holy Qur'an, through the sayings of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of be upon him, that they are all interconnected yeah. in a significant manner. Right. And where in one part of the Holy Qur'an, we are commanded in various ways to improve our spiritual health. On the other hand, we are also commanded to maintain a good physical health and one cannot coexist with the another um, without. So they're both interconnected, they both coexist. Yeah. Um, so obviously you have to keep your uh, physical uh apparent in a good way mm-hmm. because that will also reflect your your spiritual your spirituality yep. and your your how good your soul is as well.
0: Mm, definitely. I mean uh when you for example um y- anything that uh if you have pain, right? Or you have a disease, your soul feels low as well. Um and similarly when 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 you are unhealthy, right? Uh you feel it as well that you are not more act you're not active anymore. You just don't want to, you know, do stuff. You want to feel lazy. This uh, this is very common. I mean, I mean, it's very deep as well. When it comes to spirituality, um, it, we are actually guided to have a balanced diet. Therefore, we are you know told to eat not too much, so we can also uh, you know focus in our prayers as well. Definitely, and of course, you know um, one thing.
1: You might have noticed about ultra processed food. It's everywhere. Of course, we we probably consume it um, on our daily basis as well. Yeah, we tend to feel more lazy mm. after having um, these, and and the reason why is because it has so many different ingredients put together. Yep. Um, just to obviously preserve it, the sweeteners, the uh, etc. The ones we've mentioned before. Mm. It tends to make you more lazy, and of course. Overeating it as well. Overeating generally, yeah. it makes you more lazy. That's why we
0: are commanded to have a balance. Hmm. Um, so Islam, basically, you know, when we think Islam, for, for people who uh, are not familiar to Islam, they think it's a very difficult religion, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 very difficult. I
1: mean, how there's do so they many commandments. How do we so follow that? How do we follow this? Yeah. Uh, you just gotta understand that Islam, the religion, religion itself is yeah. easy, yeah. right? And if you want to live the best and perfect life, you yeah. have to follow the teachings of right. God Almighty and mm-hmm. His prophets, yeah, because they taught us the best way and how we how one can live their lives. Definitely, because at the end of the day, our final goal is of course the hereafter, the what heading to heaven. Hmm. That's our goal. And of course, if we live and abide by the teachings of the prophets and what the commandments of Allah the Almighty, mm-hmm. then of course, we would, we would be um, in, in the hereafter, be in the heaven. Definitely. And Islam promotes the middle ground, yep. the, the best way mm-hmm. of, of everything and a balance in our lives with the consumption of these foods, for example, we're talking about, yeah. as with many other commandments. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Quran promotes a moderate balanced lifestyle, whether that comes to worship, or whether that's to do with foods or our activities or the way we behave in our daily lives mm. uh, and staying away from evil evil and sins and lying etc
0: yeah I mean um, every single thing you can see is beneficial for us it's it's the middle way it's nothing too harsh when you think the benefits of it in the long term you know you see that every single commandment is good for you uh, it's it's actually the country of um Bad. Yep. Uh, there is also a um, verse of the Holy Quran where God Almighty states, and this is from chapter seven, verse thirty-two. Is for those who are interested, to the reason why we always, you know, mention the co- uh, the the uh, chapters and the verses. If if anyone is interested, they can go and read for themselves as well. Where God Almighty in the Holy Quran states, "O children of Adam." Look to your adornment at every time and place of worship and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds. I mean, exceeding the bounds. What does that sound? You know, what does that mean to you?
1: Of course, if you look before this, it means that you eat and drink, of course, because in order to stay healthy and in order to stay alive, yeah food and water and it's essential for us of it's essential for our bodies but what it means by not to exceed the bounds is by prohibiting yourself that could also be the amount you eat and also what you eat yeah okay and for example of course this ultra processed food is we cannot be uh, completely off it yeah. because it's difficult yeah. um that could also have many factors for example the finances and of course everything that's around us one could only um for certain people it might that might be the only thing available to them on a certain days yeah. okay so for that reason we may not be able to um prohibit those but of course if you do have those then you gotta be also considerate on on the diet and that amount you're taking so do not exceed the bounds in that regards as well do not be having these so and so processed foods every day. Yeah. Because at the end of the day it's going to um be a risk factor to your health. Yeah,
0: definitely. I it, it, it is definitely something you know, we should look upon those first. I mean every scripture, especially the Quran refers to the the scripture of Ahl Kitab or the people of the, the book, book. Um which, you know, mainly are uh, the Jews and the Christians or the Bible and the Torah, right? Uh, but then we also believe in the other scriptures as well, but these are the latest to us. that's why it is the most relevant to islam Its also has so many guidance that is related to is to and and it's relatable because yeah. uh, as as Muslims and as Ahmadi Muslims, what we believe is that all the prophets have come for the purpose of you know uniting mankind for one purpose, and that is. Um, to believe in the oneness of God, or believe that there is a creator. And the Quran, in fact, states that there is Nur, there is a light in the, the previous books. Um, so, you know, for those who are religious, you know, they'll see that in their books, they'll find guidance on how to live in this world. That's why we, we find guidance in every scripture and mm. the Quran <clears> being as whole, the whole from you know god almighty uh, the, the whole quran is a book of god uh, no human interference is there in the quran that's why the whole book is basically a guidance for mankind now it's 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 amazing that every verse you open every everywhere every, you know every page you, you you open and you try to see guidance you find that as well and we see that many people uh, who are not from a Muslim background, in fact, maybe they they never had a belief in mm. any god, when they just open the book, and there's so many people they say that, you know, I opened the book, I started reading, and it clicked in my mind that okay, I, I was going through these difficulties, and God Almighty is, you know, uh, telling me the the answer for my difficulties, and you've seen that. And I challenge that, you know, anyone who is going through difficulties, or anyone who wants to seek the guidance, or just just to find out why they are here, right? Read the Quran, read the Quran, and ponder upon its meanings. His meanings, <laughs> what God Almighty is telling, uh, trying to tell you, hmm. right? Not just one verse, maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, the whole chapter. Or even, you know, sometimes you'll find guidance in one verse. Yeah, definitely. Right? And yeah, of course, we're, we're talking about excessive eating and
1: this yeah. ultra processed food. This I'm one quoting, verse, We're quoting one verse. One verse. One and, uh, verse at a time, yeah. And of course, okay, we um, think back for us as Muslims, um, we should try and follow every commandment of Allah the Almighty that is mentioned in the Holy Quran and through his prophets. And um, a number of times we reminded uh, reminded by our fifth caliph, of the Ahmadi Muslim community, mm-hmm. Hazrat Mizza mm-hmm. Masoor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. He mentioned that in order to live a very successful life and and a righteous life, you need to pick up the Holy Quran. This is a this is a lesson for for us as a, as a reminder as well for yeah. those of our listeners as well mm-hmm. that we should pick up the Holy Quran and we should look at the commandments of God, Allah the Almighty, yep. um, what He has commanded us to do, what He has commanded us to stay away from. Mm-hmm. Here we have an example of what Allah the Almighty has commanded us, yeah, which is eat and drink, but do not exceed the bounds. Mm-hmm. We should keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Of course, obviously, maybe some verses do not have certain commands, but there's over 700 commandments within yep. the Holy Quran. So we should try and make a list ourselves. Yeah. But the following uh, line is also very important. The following where it says that He, meaning Allah the Almighty, does not love those who exceed the bounds. Yep. Of course, us as Muslims, we want to attain the pleasure of Allah, the Almighty. And when we look at this commandment, that if we are doing it, or maybe at times, your love for food is different, right? Because mm-hmm. I know I, I like food, I right, like generally, food well. <laughs> and yourself as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sometimes we cannot um, control ourselves into uh, how, the amount we eat, mm-hmm. or what we eat, um, it's just our desires. Uh, mm. but we have to obviously note down these commandments of course i'm i've read this verse now today yeah. um, so i'm going to note this down and yeah. next time i have these urges or I have these temptations yeah. i'll have this back in the back of my mind that allah does not love those who exceed the bounds
0: thank you for reminding me this uh, uh, you know this advice from his holiness as well because uh, i did forget about the uh, i remember he mentioned, he had mentioned it in the it friday sermon yeah and uh, it, the reason I just you know clicked in my mind and I rem it, it, I remembered again because I was going through this with the members of my community uh, with a review of uh, the Friday sermon. But this is something that, like you said, you know, now we should write down the commandments that we find from the Holy Quran, and we should implement that. Yeah, and, and slowly, slowly, you'll see that you'll build up that list. Yeah, and you'll see your
1: life being so perfected, and you'll start to. To see a change in your life. Sometimes yeah. you do have habits which are hard to get rid of. Yeah. Um, and difficult because you've been doing it for so long. Yeah, But once you actually note down the commandment and just have it in the back of your mind, mm-hmm. then for future, you'll see how it will help you grow as a person and your personality and your character. Mm. So I think it is very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be yeah. upon him, he was actually asked how... Uh, by one of the companions, how uh, I think he was a male member who asked, "How can he uh, progress in, mm. or, or how can he be successful?" And one advice that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said is that um, uh, every day you should improve in in whatever you do. Right? And every day you should leave a bad habit. So adopt a good habit, leave a bad habit. Even if it's slowly, slowly, do that, but just stick to it. That means you have to come to a realization that today I have left this bad habit and today I have gained a good habit. It could be anything, right? <clears throat> For example, let's say, um, you know... Uh, one of the tips of of eating lesser food and allowing your food to digest is that you, I think, uh, you know, you should be biting, um, or or how do you call it? I can't remember the name. Um, oh, chewing, yeah, mm. chewing is the name that uh, the the word I was looking for. You should be chewing thirty two times, uh, before you swallow your food. So every single time you you eat, or you f- you eat something. You should swallow it thirty-two times. It's, it's a good yeah, good habit. Right. Chew it thirty-two times, and then swallow, and and yeah. then swallow. Mm. And then uh, this is uh, something you should adopt, which is God good. If you do that every day, you'll see that uh, you end up eating less yeah, because and yeah. You and I was about to mention
1: that you you realize that you end up eating less because you'll be f- much fuller. Yeah. quick, because
0: uh, uh, you 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 know I've tried this <laughs> many times, but uh you know sometimes I don't have the the patience right thirty two times uh the thing is uh you know you take so much time in eating just one handful yeah, mouthful, of food yeah. right or oh, a mouthful uh that what about the whole plate then you realize I've taken too much food, okay, I should have taken you know half of the plate then uh, I could actually apply that you yeah. know rule that I've you know <laughs> adopted in my life you yeah. see. So um, this is a good habit uh, that you have adopted and maybe a bad habit that you could leave is um, let's say if you eat three times a day processed food, Mm. dedicate one uh, meal meal to not processed food. Even if it's very easy to cook, Mm. just do not eat that, uh, you know, dedicate, leave, leave bad food, leave processed food for that specific meal maybe in the evening and add a healthier diet or a healthy meal instead of that.
1: So, yeah, we've already established that just to completely eliminate the ultra processed foods is not practical for anyone. Yeah, but maintaining a balanced diet and moderate diet, it is possible to do that. And for instance, like one can consume a breakfast consisting of one item considered ultra processed, like Mm. we were mentioning, like, let's say instead of let's say breakfast, lunch and dinner, having three meals, ultra processed food. Yep. Um, let's say you're having breakfast and let's say one of the items within breakfast is ultra processed food mm-hmm. uh, while consuming some fresh foods, which will balance it mm-hmm. See, okay? Th- that way. We can also will also fill ourselves, um, but we're also keeping a balance. Mm. This way we are reducing the risk factors associated with endless and the sole consumption of ultra processed foods. Mm-hmm. And we, it's also much more difficult for someone to go on a fresh ingredients diet uh, when they've been consuming canned foods and frozen meals all their lives. And yeah. I've seen a lot of people. You, sometimes you go to the supermarket, and people have just got um, the trolley full of processed foods. For example, ready-made meals. Yeah. All they have to do is it's because also the conveniency yeah. is very is very convenient for these people that are living a life which is really busy, busy. they've got um, their work that they need to attend for, they've got other activities, etc. Yeah. and they have that burden. So they just buy these ready-made meals, they go home um, into the microwave or yeah. oven, five minutes, six minutes, and done, and eat, and that's it. Yeah. And you don't have to clean up anything, you don't have to do anything, and you just throw that in the bin after.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mi- it's very again, microwave as well. Microwave, yeah. that's
1: another risk factor, your health uh, risk factor. Hmm. So, but it is not only more logical, it is much easier for someone to consume a little bit of both in their diets. So having, let's say fruit or vegetable as part of the diet along with, let's say, if they're, if they're helpless and can't have a, a
0: meal full of uh, unprocessed foods. There is one thing um, that I was actually, you know, I was just watching some videos on YouTube and one thing popped up and that is <coughs> fermenting food. What is that? Fermenting is, you know, for example, you have achar, right? Okay. We, we eat that with uh, with roti. Then uh, it's like achar like is basically like pickles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so pickles and other foods that are you know fermented in in um in vinegar and other ingredients, which is which is natural ingredients. Um. So back in the days, people used to ferment foods. They used to, you know, you could keep them for a very very long time. Mm. Um. So those kind of foods are actually good. And it's good for your gut. It's healthier. Yeah, it makes it more stronger as well. So we could do that to keep like foods for a longer time. For example, pickled onions. If you want to use onions for a longer time, pickled onions, pickled, uh, you know, cucumbers, cucumbers and whatever onions that. and yeah, yeah. So there's so many things you can do, right? Um, and 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 also. If anything happens, uh, if any emergency comes and the shelves are empty, you you don't have any foods, then at least you have these fermented foods that you can use to survive at least. And that is healthy, right? Instead of using tinned food. So this is, uh, you um, you know, I've never thought of this, but this was very common back in the days when they didn't have any fridges. So in order to keep foods for longer, they used to ferment foods, and keep it for longer, of course. Um, But, you know, to speak more in detail about, um, you know, our topic of food addiction, I would like to um, welcome Hilary Brooke, um, who is a graduate of Columbia Journalism School, Um, is a health correspondent at Insider and covering all things um, public health with regards to public health. So, um, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Drive Time Show.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Thank you very much for, for joining us today. So, we are discussing about food addiction and uh, specifically about processed food, uh, the harms of it, um, why it is bad for us, and why we should be avoiding that um so what are some of uh, can you please um uh you know elaborate on what minimally processed foods entail so minimally processed mm. foods
2: Mhm. Mhm. well first of all i just want to say it is really hard for us in this modern world to completely avoid processed foods um and you know processing can really like at, at a very basic level include anything that you do to a food. So, um, you know, if you grind it, if you dry it, if you ferment it, like you we're speaking about there, um, you know, those can also all be considered ways of minimally processing food. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing, nothing really inherently wrong with processing food. It's just good to be aware of how the properties change when you're processing food. And of course, with our, ultra processed foods, what we're discovering is that they really are having a very deep impact on people's health. So it's just good to be aware of like the different nature of foods when things are processed. Um, Minimally processing, you know, that could be, you know, even freezing a vegetable, you know, you're you're doing something to it, Um, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily something that's going to have a huge impact on like the nutritional value.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so this is something which is much better than uh, you know, processed or ultra-processed foods. And uh, could you also uh, shine some light on mid-leveled processed food?
2: Mm, okay, sure. So um, there's actually um, this grouping system that health researchers use called the NOVA food classification system. And they have, I think it's four different groups. So, yeah, uh, group four is the ultra-processed foods that we're very used to seeing, you know, at the gas station and the grocery store, these packaged sweets and treats and industrial formulations. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have processed foods, which maybe would be like what you were speaking about in the beginning, the canned or tinned things or um, smoked meats. And then we have this sort of mid-level you're talking about, which I guess would just be things like, um, butter or lard or salt—these um, different seasonings that you can use to change, like the character of a food. Like you were saying, you might mm. want to use some salt to um, help preserve a food for a longer period of time, for example.
0: Okay, okay,
1: yeah. So Hilary, uh, you've mentioned as well, and we were talking about it earlier as well that it's—it's it's, nowadays it's very very hard to stay away from this processed food at uh, like completely and we were discussing yeah. some factors of how instead of please uh, completely getting rid of it uh, how we can balance our diets to to so it's better so what are some tips yeah. on avoiding processed foods
2: Yeah. So I actually underwent a little self experiment um, a few years ago where I tried to cut out ultra processed foods from my diet entirely. And it was really hard. (laughs) I did it just for one month. um, And it was really hard. But I think, like, just keeping in mind some of the principles of these different types of foods. So knowing, like, you know, more unprocessed foods are going to uh, generally have like more fiber in them. So they'll keep you fuller for longer. So like trying to include, you know, some fresh vegetables in your diet, um, trying to, you know, maybe you're cooking like pasta for dinner or something, but you include some vegetables, some, you know, fiber and um, nutrients, other vitamins in there. Um, And actually there was just a report that came out in the Lancet yesterday Showing that, um, you know, not all processed foods are created equal, so that you know, um, processed grains, for example, like bread or cereal, was not as closely tied to some of these negative chronic disease health outcomes as things like processed meats or sugar sweetened beverages. So, those are the things that you really want to be more careful about, you know, thinking about how can I um maybe not consume as much coca-cola or not as much apple juice and
3: maybe
2: mm. the apple instead getting all that fiber um yeah. to help stay full for longer so just being aware of like the science of how these foods uh go through your body i think is helpful
1: right i'm very interested in the experiment you've done and uh, apart from, <laughs> from 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 that being a very hard and difficult task an experiment what other uh, factors did you see as a result outcome of of that experiment
2: yeah so like i said it was only for one month
1: did you Um, see any increased health benefits or um, whether you were more productive
2: um uh, gosh that's really difficult to say it was also during the pandemic (laughs) kind of in lockdown um so there was a lot of other factors going on in my life um I really tried to, uh, like... Would you recommend my it? My mood every time.
1: Would you recommend it to oh, others? Oh, my
2: God. I... Yeah, I think it was a good...
0: Experiment. Sort of, like, reset. Yeah.
2: Reset to realize, like, what are the things that I can do more often? Um, I guess as a result of that experiment, I... Instead of, like, getting packaged granola bars, sometimes I will make my own. You just use, like and honey
4: um
2: and like you know put them together into these little energy eat those for breakfast sometimes um but i don't know if i would say i recommend it i actually was talking to a um researcher here in the u.s at the national institutes of health one time and i said you know he researches how processed foods, make mm. us eat more, um, consume more calories, and he more quickly actually did a really interesting study where he had people, um, he offered people the same amount of nutrients and calories for unprocessed, and people ended up eating more and gaining more wow. weight with the processed diet. So it was really interesting. So I was asking him because he, he knows all this stuff mm. um, because he studies it. I said, so do you uh, eat any processed food? And he said, you know, I have two, I don't remember how many kids he has, but I have little kids. And so, you know, sometimes after a long day, you know, you do want to just, like, throw in the chicken nuggets or throw (laughs) in the frozen pizza.
1: Um,
2: So, I think it's, like, it's really hard, like I was saying in the beginning. But it's just good to, like, you know, be aware of the benefits and the drawbacks, I guess. You know, they they stick around for a long time. They're not going to go bad like fresh produce does. But um, so, they have have a role to play, I guess, unfortunately. (laughs) But um you know it's good to try to think about how you can kind of
1: yeah no definitely right rely on we need to know what the risk factors are and then of course then yeah. as you've mentioned some of the tips as well and we mentioned earlier as well hillary just lastly uh do you think moderation with all these food items is possible for the common public
2: yeah i think it is i mean obviously sometimes it's like those are the only things that are being offered you know you go somewhere and like maybe they only have little little packaged cookies and that's that's all they're offering so sometimes it's not possible um but i think moderation is possible you know you can make choices and hopefully hopefully they're not extensive choices Um, (laughs) you know hopefully you can find things that are cheap like um chickpeas are really great cheap unprocessed food or you know all these beans and rice and things
1: Yep. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. Hillary, it was a pleasure having you on our show today.
2: Thanks. Thanks for chatting with me.
1: Thank you. So, Zakaria, that was Hillary, a graduate of Columbia Journalism School, is a health correspondent at Insider, and she was here to just enlighten, give us more insight and of course regarding some tips on how
0: we can avoid yeah. this ultra processed food. I mean, uh, it's it's awareness that, you know, can change people, right? So, the more aware we are about the harms, the benefits, hmm. uh, the more we can, you know, change ourselves. It's, hmm. it's very uh, important for us to know about the the harms that we or the things that we eat. We should know what we we're should eating. Know. Yeah. Um, but Islam also gives a solution to reset our bodies, and that reset, God Almighty, not only has, um, you know, made it, uh, he 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 had it made it, he has made it compulsory for every adult. And that reset is fasting. You know, any expert, you know, you, majority of experts nowadays ha- or health experts, uh, when you ask them, how can you reset your your body from the, the intoxication and all the things they eat? And I've, I've heard so many times that say they go for fasting. Fast for a few days. Yeah. Or do intermittent fasting, right? Or don't eat for a few days. I mean, mm. they, they have like a in a way how to do that but islam actually and god almighty actually tells you not he doesn't give you an option he tells you i know that you've been unhealthy even if you've been healthy right go to a, a whole month of fasting that will reset your body that will yeah. you know cleanse all the intoxication and 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 all the the poison that you've been feeding yourself maybe right and most likely you do mm. in this day and age right cleanse yourself for the whole month of ramadan and that's you know we know that we do that and that is also already in our lives we already Definitely. adopted mm. it. and no health uh, you know uh, expert would actually you know speak against it they would say mm. that this is one of the best things that god has gifted to mm. the muslims you know maybe you should adopt that as well mm. <laughs> you know you realize that you know you end up it depends. If you follow the footsteps of the Holy Prophet and actually do how you f- should be fasting, then you can make a major change, major change in your life, especially in the month of Ramadan. And this is what we, you know, in Islam, it's it's been taught to us that, um, you know, Ramadan is something that you do for God Almighty, to please God Almighty. You mm. are abstaining from food to please God Almighty. But then you have to understand that it actually has so many
1: benefits. Yeah, no, of course, it has benefits, and of course, it's it's one of the pillars of Islam, and Muslims are obligated to to fast within to fast the month then. of. Yeah, and apart from, of course, it has fasting has many many obviously spiritual benefits, but fasting it also brings about a complete physiological change within yeah. your bodies, and giving it rest to the digestive tract yeah. and the central nervous system which can be very beneficial, like surrounded by these dangerous and ultra-processed foods. Yeah. It, it can be very beneficial for our bodies. Mm-hmm. And fasting, it can also provide a sort of break to the body. It's allowing it to heal from all the negative effects of unhealthy food consumption. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Uh, and of course, now new research and every uh, we see that uh, it has become fasting yeah. a kind of a normal thing for those that are, Into their workouts and into their uh, keeping a healthy and uh, physical good appearance, Um, they are told, advised to do uh, fasting, etc. Yeah,
0: intermittent fasting, which is very common nowadays, and uh, many uh, athletes have actually adopted this into into their lives. But we Muslims, that we have also, we already have adopted since we've you know since we were adults, of course. Um, you know, we have come to the end of the first hour. Uh, of course, we're going to discuss another topic in the next hour. But the Holy Prophet, I want to end with the, the quote of the Holy Prophet. Peace and be upon him. Who has said that he is not a believer who eats to his full, but his neighbors goes without food. So when you become selfish, when you eat a lot, but you don't care about your neighbors, that is something which is worrying as well. Um, i mean so much guidance that the holy prophet has given to us but you know what i want to say is i want to end with uh, one thing that take care of your health uh, we will don't go anywhere and here is this five o'clock news you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed assalamualaikum peace be upon you and welcome back to the drive time show um as promised in the previous hour we uh, you know said that we are going to discuss about ibn arabi um for many of you he might not be a you know not familiar to you but this is what we are going to discuss uh and why we are going to discuss he's he's this this individual is also very important to understand now um the the promised messiah the founder of the Ahmadiyya muslim community peace, peace be upon him um, he also wrote about this individual and he wrote about him that the mystic, the poet, the philosopher, a scholar and uh, he co- and he was a, a philosopher, he was a scholar, he was a mystic, he was a poet and not only him, even some of the eminent Muslim scholars also um, such as Muhyiddin ibn Arabi author of Fosus and some elders of uh, Naqshbandi order um, are known to have been great experts in this science. What is the science that he has studied and he has uh, written about is of healing. Um, and it actually didn't have any equal in their own times. I mean, look at the writings at these people, um, especially Ibn Arbi. You see so much wisdom in it. Uh, of course, he was a a religious person, but also a uh, he had so much knowledge uh, you know, of the world as well. Um, the works of Ibn Arbi caused a great tidal wave in the Islamic world for some very uh, controversial, but nonetheless very influential, and even beyond the Islamic world, Ibn Arbi is hailed as a very significant figure in world philosophy, and the study of the human condition. But who is this eminent figure, and what exactly uh, were some of his ideas? Well, this is what we're gonna, you know, explore in uh, this hour. I mean, it's a very very short hour uh, to discuss about Ibn Arabi. He was a, you know, is is very well known. Even to this day, even the promised Messiah quoted him so many times. So, uh, you know, this is what we are going to discuss uh, in this hour. Um, Brother Anoshawan, could you tell us, uh, you know, the the biography of, um, uh, you know, uh, Ibn Arbi? Yeah. Who was he? Yeah, so Zakaria, yeah, just to summarize his entire life or his
1: entire work and his ideas within this remainder of the hour it's quite literally impossible yeah. because his extensive research and his philosophy um, and whatever ideas etc he had learned it's very difficult to cover but we'll try our best to just give a overview of his life and and his uh, whatever he had learned yeah. and his ideas of course so like you asked um who was he so his full name was um abu Abd Allah. Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Muhammad ibn Arabi al-Hatimi al at- al-Andalusi al-Mursi al-Dimashki. So this was his entire full name. Uh, <laughs> Very <of> lovely. Course, <laughs> that's how they usually do it. It's along yeah. with their um, uh, forefathers and their fathers, and yeah. the name is in conjunction mm-hmm. with theirs. So he was an Arab Andalusian, now considered modern-day modern Spain, a uh, Muslim scholar, mystic, poet, and philosopher whose works have grown to be very influential uh, beyond the Muslim world. So not just his work hasn't been influenced as well by, by the Muslim world, but also um, by the world, uh, other Christians and of course, um, the other Western world as well. Yeah,
0: was when I was doing research, I was actually expecting only Muslims to speak about him. But I actually found, you know, even in lots of people, you know, not from a Muslim background, speaking about him and his works admiring his works actually yeah
1: yeah so just going on with his works it is believed that he wrote approximately 850 works and 700 of which have been authenticated as his and another 400 are extant. his cosmological teachings became the dominant worldview in many parts of the Islamic world so of course if you just try to understand that he had quite an influence um, during his time and after his time regarding the ideas and the mm-hmm. philosophy philosophy that he had carried. Yep. So he was born in the city of Murcia in 1165 to the, a decently well-off family and he received a standard education and without much special attention to religious education. And he wrote that in his early teens, he underwent a visionary conversation at the hands of Jesus and this resulted in an opening of his soul toward the divine realm and this concept of the divine realm would be a significant part of his philosophy and just carrying on further shortly thereafter in about 1180 his father took him to meet his friend Everos known in the Islamic world as Ibn Rushd Hmm. which is another big prominent name that we find in Islamic history Mm -hmm. this was also a very formative part of his life as here he began to think and discuss issues about rational perception and the necessity of a greater understanding of the divine realms. So, But the key and pivotal moment in his scholarly life was when in 1201 he left Spain, never to return, and he went to perform Hajj, which is also known as the Muslim pilgrimage in Mecca. Mm-hmm. And it was here during his time, um, whilst he was performing the pilgrimage, and he was there in Mecca, that he wrote the immensely influential Al-Futuhat al-Makkiyya, which it translates to the Meccan Openings. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, he continued to travel the East, traveling from Iraq to Anatolia and eventually residing in Damascus after 1223. Okay. And he would then spend the next 17 years here um, in Damascus until his demise. So, so this ended. was like a simple but short overall view of his lifespan of where he was born and then eventually... Uh, his journey and his um, uh, converse or his what he had learned from Ibn Rushd whilst he was there. Then, of course, he went to Mecca. And then, of course, traveling to the east. And then
0: in Damascus, he passed away. Mm-hmm. So, so, born yeah. in Spain, passed away in Damascus. Mm. Um, and and I was I was just thinking that his name is very unique, um, Ibn Arbi, you know. Um, and, and the reason why he had his name Ibn arbi uh, is because uh, because he comes from a noble Arab lineage. That's why his name is Ibn arbi um, You know, in addition uh, to his biography as well. I mean, uh, I wasn't uh, I knew about him, but never knew why the name Arbi was used. So that's just to. Signify their their lineage from uh, the Arab Peninsula uh, to remember that they are actually Arabs, Mm. Um, but uh, you know of course they moved to Spain. Um, Now after his death, um, you know Ibn Arabi's teachings quickly of course spread through the Islamic world, and his writings were not limited to the Muslim elites, but uh, made their way into other ranks of society um, through the widespread reach of sufi orders um arabi's work also popularly spread through works in persian turkish and Urdu as well these are the first languages that were translated but then i think they have like english translation of his works now as well then um and many uh, popular poets were trained in the sufi orders and were inspired by his concepts um Ibn Arabi's writings remained unknown to the West until modern times but they spread throughout the Islamic world within a century of his death so just in after 100 years within the 100 years his his teachings you know his his whatever his you know his teaching was spread around the Arabian uh, or Muslim countries the early orientalists Uh, with one of the two exceptions paid little attention to him because he had no visible influence in Europe. However, as we will progress to see um, in this very short, uh, less than an hour, um, the misconceptions about this, of course. And another reason that he remained little known in Europe was because his works are considered very difficult to understand in their full wisdom And he has often been dismissed as a mystic or a pantheist uh, without trying to read him. So, you know, this is, of course, um, those people who say mystic or pantheist is probably because they haven't read his his books. But when you read his books, you'll understand that, you know, he was far from a mystic or a pantheist. And of course, if anyone knew about uh, all these works and, Uh, it will be abundantly clear for them that he was anything but a pantheist. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was actually, in fact, a holy um, person, a a holy Muslim, and uh, he would actually not be indulged in associating partners with God. So he believed in Mm -hmm. the oneness of God. Definitely. So this was what his belief was. And it, it was not until books
1: by Henry Corbyn in 1958... And Toshihiko Izutsu in 1966, was he recognized as an extraordinary, broad-ranging and highly original thinker. And, you know, with much to contribute to the world of philosophy, um, of course, in the beginning, it was kind of limited um, hmm. to, to, to the Islamic world. Of course, it, it spread rapidly within the century before his, uh, after his demise, but then of course, as, as the world grew and obviously it turned into a global village, yeah. uh, people were able to access his works and his, the books he had written. Hmm. And so these two scholars that I've just mentioned, however, limited their attention almost entirely to one of his short works, which is Fasusul uh, al-Hikam, which is the ringstones of the wisdoms. So although ringstones was the focus of a long tradition of commentary, it represents but a tiny fraction of what he offers in his massive Al-Futuh al So this is the book that we mentioned. One is like one of the famous or works that people have studied and understood. And you got to understand that these philosophical, philosophical terms, they're very to read about them and to understand them is very is difficult. Yeah. And um, but the way it has been written it takes you into a different dimension of your thinking and your process yeah. and, and of course how you write them. It's just not, uh, for at times it's very difficult to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, of course, like these, these two um, scholars, they had just looked at his short work, but obviously the original, the massive work was inside the Fatuhat al-Makkiyah, which is the meccan of our uh, openings. And more recently, scholars have begun to look at this work which will fill an estimated 15,000 pages in its modern edition. But relatively, a little of it has been translated into Western languages, and what has been translated is still noted to require a lot of further study.
0: Right, right. Interesting. Um, um, so we also had a, um, a guest earlier. Um, I think you spoke to the guest um, um uh, it was Professor Cyrus Ali um,
1: Zargar. Zargas. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I I had the. Uh, we spoke to him earlier, and I think it was it was really interesting mm-hmm. um, to do that talk with him and just to get his um, uh, understanding of what he thinks of Ibn Arabi because he had studied mm-hmm. um, Ibn Arabi's works and writings mm-hmm. for quite a number of years, and of course he is a professor himself. Um, so it was very interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's listen to his, his and yours conversation actually. Yeah. Alaykum,
1: and peace be upon you, zakala uh, for joining us. Um, so our listeners, uh, Cyrus Ali Zargar is Al-Ghazali Distinguished Professor of Islamic Studies and Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Central Florida, where he co-directs UCF's Interfaith Dialogue Certificate Programme. Zagar's research interests focus on the metaphysical, aesthetic, and ethical intersections between Sufism and Islamic philosophy. His first book, Sufi Aesthetics, Beauty, Love, and the Human Form in Ibn Arabi and Iraqi, was published in 2011 by the University of South Carolina Press. His most recent book, The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursue of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism, was published in 2017. With this short interview, uh, a short introduction, I would like to welcome uh, Cyrus Ali Zargar onto our show today, where he will enlighten us with some insight. Thank you Thank for joining
3: us. us. Thank you for having me.
1: So, first question: Can you briefly introduce Ibn Arabi and his significance in the context of Islamic philosophy and mysticism?
3: I'd be happy to. Yeah. So, um, Ibn Arabi was is what you'd call a a Spanish Muslim thinker. He's from Murcia, from uh, an area now known as Spain, then known as Al-Andalus, and actually that's an important thing to consider uh, when it comes to his life, in my opinion, um, because what was happening in Al-Andalus at the time uh, was that um, you know uh, intellectuals were thinking about the relationship between philosophy and Sufism. Um, they were in, they were well informed, well read, but also removed from some of the centers, the, the busier centers of learning. And I think that that led to a lot of freedom uh, of thought and new ideas that were happening around his time in like the 13th century. Um, yeah. So uh, he uh, grew up in a, um, in an aristocratic family um, and he describes himself as having a conversion uh, a- and retreating to moments of meditation in his youth where he in, in one in one moment, really on one day, he had this unveiling that he says basically uh, supplied him with what he needed for the rest of his life. In a sense that everything, everything that he would say from then on out drew from that initial experience, uh, he wrote uh, countless books, uh, he wrote poetry, he commented on his own poetry, um, he had a devoted group of, of students. He traveled widely, Um, you know, he went, of course, to North Africa and then um, to, uh, you know, West Asia, uh, Mecca, um, settling in in, uh, Damascus. Um, So um, he uh, he really brought uh, a new perspective, but a new perspective that was grounded in um, some of the uh, discoveries at what you can consider sort of the peak of classical thing, you know, classical uh, Islamic thought. I mean, what I'm saying is that he basically okay. lived at a time uh, that that's, uh, that that's almost the apex of s- certain traditional sciences. And he studied them. Uh, but aside from studying them, had these experiences where he was able to sort of bring it all together and answer certain questions that, um, that, you know, bothered intellectuals that and and non-intellectuals alike, everyone. You know, and right. uh, then his his writings became more and more popular, uh, even after his life.
1: Great, thank you for that introduction. Um, sure. Could you share some of the key themes or concepts uh, from Ibn Arabi's writing that you find particularly relevant to today's world?
3: Okay, I would say um, one of the most important. Uh, uh, themes that you'll find in Ibn Arabi's writings that uh, pertains to the modern world is the relationship between uh, reason and revelation. So, right. uh, if you look at that moment, uh, that time in his youth when he was um, he was he was starting to be known for this mystical experience that he had. It's famously said that um, the philosopher Ibn Rushd, Averroes, yeah. had heard. About him, and since his father, Ibn Arabi's father, was a man of influence, a meeting was arranged, and Ibn Rush asked uh, Ibn Arabi a famous question. Um, uh, You know, to which um, uh, so it's 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 a funny encounter. But basically, Ibn Rush says, uh, "Sorry, can you? Am I looking at the camera right now? Is everything okay?" Yeah,
1: yeah, that's fine.
3: Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Yes. As, as, as almost like a question, yes. And Ibn Arabi says yes, and he looks. Ibn Rush looks happy and, and and satisfied with the answer. Uh, and then he says no, and and Ibn Rush looks you know scared. Uh, and and then Ibn 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 Arabi says you know yes and no. And between the yes and the no, uh, heads are lifted from their bodies and and uh, spirits from uh, heads are lifted from their necks and spirits from their bodies. Well, the question was you know. Is what's confirmed, uh, is what you experience confirmed by our philosophical reasoning process? In other words, you know, what we do through philosophy and what you've discovered through mysticism, do they sink? And it's yes and no. And the distance between them is huge. And so you'll see Ibn Arabi, he's putting these intellectual sciences in in sort of in their proper place. Uh, which was an important question at the time. Um, he also asks uh, questions about, well, why do we have prophets? Why does Islam teach about prophets and right. prophecy? What's the, uh, what's the relationship between saints and sainthood, and the experiences that a person can have on their own, and what the prophets have had in history? That's something that he explored. And that's a question that still lingers, uh, he he answers questions about rituals and uh, why, you know, I mean, if you look at a, a religion that has um, ritual uh, experiences and, uh, you know, ritual laws that are focused on rituals, why do we have them? What's the sense in them? He, he discusses these and he get, he, he explores them. Um, so uh, I think in that sense, uh, any, any Muslim intellectual, or, or non-Muslim intellectual will get much from re- you know reading Ibn Arabi. I mean, including by the way the question of the plural- plurality of religions. Yeah. Uh, if there's one God, why many religions and why many sects? That's something else that he considers in his writings.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's obviously his understanding and his depth of knowledge was um, was really um, great. Okay. Um, following that, Ibn Arabi's concept of unity of being, i.e., Wahdat wujud is a central theme in his philosophy. So how have you explored and interpreted this concept in your
3: work, and what are its implications? So the theme of oneness is everywhere in Ibn Arabi's writings. And in fact, you could say that even though Ibn Arabi seems to discuss, as I said, you know, every science and every question uh, that was there at that peak moment in Islamic learning, um, it all ends up coming back to oneness and the question of how do we get many from one, right? Um, so my own work has focused on the way in which uh, oneness descends. Uh, it descends through, certain, through realms of, uh, of being and through the realm of imagination to become a plurality of forms. And that's the backdrop of considering questions about beauty, about language, uh, in Ibn Arabi's writings. And he has a lot there. I and mean, in a way, he is uh, a pre-modern literary theorist and uh, also of, of someone who's thinking about aesthetics. And so that's, my, always, that's been my interest, really, to think about uh, the question of um, the multiplicity of forms and what they mean and their appreciation as going back to unified uh, a, a unified um, one- being um, uh, in, in Ibn Arabi's writings.
1: So uh, whilst doing your research and doing your own work in regards to that, what challenges or controversies have uh, arisen in the study of Ibn Arabi's writings, and how have you addressed them in your
3: research? Um, so I should say, um, I think uh, Ibn Arabi early on, even, during, even in his own lifetime, um, became a controversial figure. Um, he uh, had a book of poetry called Tajman al-Shuq, the um, the translator of desires, and um, certain scholars questioned uh, whether uh, the erotic poetry in this in this volume actually had divine signification, whether you know whether it pointed to God, or whether that was a pretext for him just really writing erotic poetry. And so, what Ibn Arabi did was write a commentary on his own poetry showing how um, there are uh, uh, spiritual meanings in erotic images and erotic poetry yeah uh, so that um, controversy uh, you know it it was there in his lifetime it was there after his lifetime and it's there today i've been places where i've i've told someone you know i study ibn arabi and th- more, on more than one occasion, I've been asked the question, you know, well, was, he, was he Muslim or was he a heretic? You know, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's something uh, that I think comes from misunderstandings and misreadings of his poetry. I mean, of his writings. It, it, in fact, what he's saying is often not that much different than statements you'll find among other, other Sufi writers, Rumi, Attar, um, even Abu Hamad Ghazali, Imam Ghazali. Yeah. Imam Ghazali is careful. Uh, much more careful than Ibn Arabi and much more guarded than Ibn Arabi. Um, but uh, the, the core concepts and the, the that a person can not just experience oneness but tap into the reality of oneness is there in a, in a lot of writings. So uh, just briefly,
1: how have you addressed these challenges? Like obviously you have people coming and in, in your research even, how have you addressed these challenges or these controversies?
3: Well, I... Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a scholar of Arabic literature uh, named Yaroslav Stiggevich, who, was, um, who expressed something along the lines of, I mean, in a way different, but in some ways along the lines of the critics of Ibn Arabi, which is that when Ibn Arabi comments on his own poetry, you know, all he does is um, create a system of meaningless codes or codes, hermetic codes, uh, where one thing points to something else. And in doing so, he sort of takes away from, loses the, um, the, uh, the, the, prof- the profundity, the poetic profundity of that poetry. And so right. the way I've addressed that is to say, no, you know, look at Ibn Arabi's commentary on his own poetry, for example. Yeah. And what you'll see is that he's communicating a real experience that others have described where the sensual is necessary. To experience the supersensual, where the sensual in a way becomes a language that frames the experience of the mystic. That's what my writing has often focused on, but not just that. Another example I'll give you is that later in Iran, in Safavid Iran, um, Ibn Arabi's writings created quite a bit of controversy. Uh, at that time, under the Safavids, uh, there was an extensive sort of concern, excessive concern with, um, being authentic to Shi'i Islam. Right. And so philosophers who borrowed from Ibn Arabi, like Mullah Sadra and Faisal Kashani, or Faith Kashani, I had to justify their work. So I've gone in and I've studied, um, Faith Kashani's, uh, readings of Ibn Arabi.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: To show, uh, ways in which, you know, um, what some have understood as really being heretical, faith Kashani is able to show as, as being part and parcel of what's found in Shi'i hadith, um, in the Quran, for example. Uh, and uh, uh, you could say, you know, in line completely with uh, Twelver Shi'i or imami doctrine, that's in the, the Safavid context, that's another example.
1: Thank you, and just lastly, uh, can you highlight any specific texts or passages from Ibn Arabi's work that you believe are particularly insightful or thought prov- provoking?
3: Sure, I'd be happy to. So I would say that for someone who wants to study Ibn Arabi, if you if you can study him in Arabic, um, you'll you'll get a lot more out of out of Ibn Arabi. Why? Uh, because Ibn Arabi is, ironically. Uh, Very concerned with the literal meaning of words, with their etymologies, Um, and so if you read him in Arabic, you'll appreciate what he's saying a lot more. Of course, that not everyone can do that, and if you can't read Ibn Arabi in Arabic, then I tend to find my students to be of two. If I had to classify them into two categories of two types, Uh, the first type is comfortable uh, is uncomfortable with ambiguity. And likes things to be categorized, and likes things to make sense. Uh, they like, um, well, how should we say? Uh, they like um, charts and you know clarity and and if that's you, nothing beats uh, William Chittick's uh, two volumes: um, the Sufi Path of Knowledge being the first, yeah. and um, Self Disclosure of God being second. But if you are a kind of person who can um, who can appreciate ambiguity, uh, you know, who's okay with it, and is okay with being thrown into a text and not understanding, uh, you could very well read the Fusus al al-Hikam, the Bezels of Wisdom, translated multiple times. And honestly, one page of that, for example, just reading the Fus Adam, even just reading half of the first chapter of that, gives you the entirety of Ibn Arabi's theory. In fact, if you pick any chapter of the Fusus al-Hikam, any single one, you also get the whole. Because he's always, he's, he, it's, it's, he'll circle back uh, to the same uh, teachings and to the same principles uh, all the time. So you can almost just pick one chapter of the Bezels of Wisdom, the Fusus al-Hikam, and keep coming back to it. Or you could read them side by side. I think that would probably be the best.
1: Great, thank you very much for the insight into uh, Ibn Arabi and sharing your research um, in regards to that. Uh, It was a pleasure having you on our show today and thank you once again for joining us.
0: So you were just listening to um, Noshirwan um, and uh, Professor Ali Zaghfir um, who uh, is a a OSIRIS professor. who is a al-Ghazali distinguished professor of Islamic studies and professor in the department of philosophy at the University of Central Florida. Florida. A very interesting topic, a very interesting um, discussion um, you know, uh, Brother Noshawan had with uh, our professor and we got an insight of the life of um, uh, Ibn Arabi. um Ibn Arabi, you know, had made many uh, prophecies as well. And one of the prophecies being uh, about uh, the uh, reformer of Islam because he himself was a Muslim. And, um, you know, he believed that the Messiah will come and he will also have a helper. And this Messiah that he, uh, you know, he has... You know, mention is the promised Messiah, Hazrat Ghulam Muhammad, peace be upon him. So he also mentioned that there will be a, a helper to him, um, and 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 this helper was Hazrat Hakim Maulwi Nuruddin Sahib. Um, so this uh, you know a prominent uh, companion of Hazrat Ghulam Muhammad. Hazrat Mirza Hakim Nuruddin uh, uh, the first caliph of the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community was a colossal uh, personality Um, he was also a talented author, eminent scholar extraordinary virtues and a theologian par excellence um, being very well versed in medicine Um, he was also the royal physician to the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir for many years um, so Ibn Arabi actually, you know, made a prophecy about him. So this is something I want to discuss later on. Uh, but before that, I would like to, uh, you know, uh, speak to Jane Clark, um, who is uh, who studied uh, engineering and physics at undergraduate level, started uh, studying Ibn Arabi in 1977. So many years ago. Um, He has a Master's in Medieval Islamic Thought at the University of Oxford. Assalamu Alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show.
4: Hello, thank you.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Um, So, um, just to start off, can you please provide an overview of uh, Ibn Arabi's life and the historical context during which he lived?
4: Um, well, I know Aben Arabi was born in Maury, Spain in 1165, that's um, 560 of the Hijra, mm-hmm. and died in 1240 in Damascus, you know, where his tomb is still an important local landmark. And he, he lived at a time when the Islamic world was in some ways in its prime or in one of its primes. You know, when the great cities such as Seville and Cordoba, where he grew up in the West and Cairo, Damascus and Baghdad in the heartlands of the empire were highly sophisticated centers of learning in all sorts of spheres, you know, philosophy, literature, medicine, science, astronomy, very far in advance of anything that was happening in Europe at that time. But at the same time, it was a period when the empire was under great threat. You know, in Ibn Arabi's native land, the Franks were intent on reclaiming Spain for Christendom, and the heartlands of the Crusades were raging. Um, he was the contemporary of Salah Adin, and during his lifetime, you know, Jerusalem changed hands three times. And then then in the east, the Mongols were conducting a campaign of terror, which led them to the conquest of Baghdad about 20 years after his death. So it was a period when there was great concern about whether Islam would survive at all. And there was a general movement, which he himself, you know, was very much part of, to write down the wisdom and knowledge of the Sufi tradition, which had been established over the previous 400 years. You know, Ibn Arabi lived in an age of spiritual giants, um, Shahabuddin Suhrawardi, Najm al kubra and Jalaluddin Rumi, to name, but a few were all contemporaries of his. Mm-hmm. And these people all appeared at this time when there seemed to be you know, an urgent need to preserve the wisdom of this very important tradition. Mm-hmm. And so you know, Ibn Arabi himself entered into the Jewish path, and he was still a teenager, probably you know, as young as 15. And the story is that he was called by God in the middle of a feast, you know, who said to him, Muhammad, which was his personal name, it, it was not for this that you were created. Um, and he went into retreat, during which it was said that he received through direct illumination, all the knowledge that he would later expound in his writings. Nevertheless, he entered into the Sufi path as a novice and underwent an education in Andalusia and North Africa under a number of Sufi masters, which we know about because he later wrote about them. Mm. And then when he was about in his late 30s, he was ordered by God to go on the Hajj, you know, the pilgrimage, and travelled east, never in fact to return. So for the next 20 years he became a teacher, and a writer, and a spiritual advisor to local ru- rulers. I mean he travelled constantly between all the great cities of the central region until in about 1222 he settled in Damascus and where he wrote some of his most important books. And it really is for his written heritage that he became well-known. There is an extant corpus of about 110 books, some of which are extremely substantial. You know, Al-Futahat al-Makir, for instance, is in the Meccan Revelations, is about 9,000 pages in the Arabic, wow. with around 560 chapters. Wow. <laughs> and, then, and there are several middle-length works of, of 100 or 200 pages, as well as a lot of short treatises and poetry.
0: Hmm, interesting. Um, what are some of the key uh, philosophical ideas and concepts associated with uh, Ibn Arbi, uh, particularly in his works like um, Fusus al-Hikam and uh, Futuhat al-Makiyya?
4: Well, in the Sufi trai- the Sufi tradition that came after him, he became best known as what became called the al-Wujud or the unity of being. Yeah. It seems that neither he himself or his immediate followers actually use this term. I mean, they characterize themselves rather as people of tahkik, or realization, people who realize the truth of things. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I think it is true to say that the idea that there is only one reality you know, is central to Ibn Arabi's thought. I mean, in his account of creation, for instance, He begins with the principle of oneness, with the notion of one absolute being Mm -hmm. and shows how all the multiplicity of things, people, events that we see around us in the world have been generated from that. And more than this, how they remain part of that unity are never separated from it in reality, even in what can seem sometimes to be a really distant state in this physical world. So it really is an extraordinary, integrated and comprehensive vision that he put forward. I think he himself, um, his writing, saw his task about bringing out the all-encompassing nature of divine compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, he describes how God gave him this function in midlife when he was first leaving Mecca to begin his life of teaching in the East. And God said to him, you know, why do my servants despair of my mercy when it encompasses everything? You know, a great deal of Ibn Arabi's exposition is commentary on the Quran, and he always wants to bring out the most expansive, the most compassionate and the most merciful interpretation of the uh, of the text. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I myself think that one of his most important teachings in the present day is what he has to say about the nature of the human being. Uh He saw the human being as having a truly great potential, you know, to be, as the Quran says, in the image of God, Mm. and as having a crucial role within the creation, not in terms of domination, um, but as the conduit of the divine love and compassion, and both of these notions—you know—the great possibility we have as human beings, and the responsibility that we have towards the world—have been almost entirely forgotten in the modern Western world. And yeah. I think we rea- rather desperately need to Definitely. need to regain them. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, f- from uh, from uh, you know the the scholars that we had earlier. I mean, their works also shows the responsibility that we have for our fellow human beings. Uh, But it's it's just, uh, you know, we have to ponder upon those words, of course. Um, And unfortunately, we are forgetting our purpose of life. And that is, you know, not just, you know, to gain fame or money or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. also to take care of our fellow human beings. Uh, Ibn Arbi is also... Known to be a significant figure in, in Sufism, um, how did he teach uh, how did his teachings and writings contribute to the development of sufi thoughts and uh, i 'm pretty sure that not everyone knows about Suf- Sufism. Could you also explain what Sufism is please <clears throat> <laughs> uh,
4: well Sufism is a kind of i suppose a generic term for the mystical aspect of islam uh-huh. um, which was hmm, um, which was a very established tradition, um, beginning from about 800 um, all the way through the tradition. There were people who um, entered into, if you like, intense spiritual practice Mm -hmm. and contemplation with a view to gaining a closeness and union. Well, union is maybe a little bit of a difficult term with closeness. To God, to God, and who emphasised the love of God for creation, mm-hmm. rather than, a, you know, a more fearful, you know, God the mm. God the Great. You know, they advocated and believed that we could be we we could be close to God, and um, they were a very. It was a very important movement within traditional Islam. Mm. um um over 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 many centuries you know most of the most of the great cities would have had um you know khanakas or, or places of sufi of 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 the sufi orders within the center of the city and they played an enormous role in in the pastoral care of the population mm-hmm. um, in you know looking after the poor healing the sick and 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 and, and such like um one thing that we we'll want to say um, about Ibn Arabi and his followers that they never founded a, a Sufi order um, or a, a tariqa which was specifically devoted to his way. Mm-hmm. You know, this is unlike many of the other great figures of his time, like Najm al Kubra, who was the founder of the Kubrawiya order, or Rumi, who is regarded as the founder of the Mevlevi Dervishes. Mm-hmm. You know, the result, the result is that. Ibn Arabi's teachers have been have had a very general and pervasive effect on all the Sufi orders at different times and in in, in different ways. Um, I suppose what we'd say that um, Sufism changed fundamentally after his time. Um, previously it had been a uh, very much a, much more of an oral tradition, passed on master to master. Um, but after after him, it, you know, the, if you like, what he what he and his followers really gave the tradition was an intellectual foundation, you in know, cognitive framework, which in these very subtle, delicate, and you know, in it, it ultimately ineffable experiences of um, uh, on the spiritual path could be spoken about, or or, or thought about, or expounded up, uh, upon. You know, I mean, his work actually covers all all aspects of the spiritual path. In our uh, Futahat, for instance, is a massive compendium of mystical knowledge, the the like of which we have not seen either before or since, I, I believe, in any spiritual tradition. And it covers many as practical aspects of the path. You know, there are many there are long chapters on things like prayer and pilgrimage you know, as well as categorizing a huge range of mystical states of knowledge and, and functions. So when you take a Sufi thought, you know, I'm assuming that you're referring to the more philosophical aspects of his exposition, you know, the cosmology, you know, the understanding of the meaning of numbers and letters, such like, you know, and this became the foundation of a whole new discipline, which is sometimes referred to these days, you know, Sufi metaphysics.
0: Hmm. Um And lastly, I would like to ask um, uh, what his writings were like, Um, you know, they were known to be very complex and symbolic Uh, when it comes to, you know, reading them uh, might be not easy. So uh, how can one approach and interpret his text for a better understanding?
4: Um, well, I think there is no doubt that Ibn Arabi is is demanding. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it's not always easy to just sit down and read him. But, you know, traditionally, this would not have been the way that they were studied. Mm. Rather, you know, they were studied in groups. And this is how most people actually access them today. You know, in group studied situations where they can come the starting point for discussion. You know, it can help if the group is led or at least has someone in it who has some knowledge of the metaphysical foundations and this is quite possible these days as there are now many people who have familiarity with the ideas but you know when i first started in the 1970s we just plunged in and made of it what 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 we could um We also have the advantage these days of a very substantial and very high quality secondary literature literature on him. Mm -hmm. You know, there are many books and there are articles and podcasts, which is probably wise to access alongside reading the original text, especially in the beginning. But actually, the most important thing I want to say about this is that these works are above all teaching texts which were written with the intention of helping the reader on their journey mm-hmm. towards their own realization. You know, they are not really physical philosophical texts, which one can read in the way we would usually approach a piece of philosophy, you know, with the intellect unpicking and analyzing the words. They were addressed to what the Sufi tradition calls the heart, mm-hmm. which is the organ of mystical perception, or you could say that they are designed to remind us of who and what we really are. So mm-hmm. they you know, stir memories of experiences and states that we are perhaps unaware of most of the time. So mm. when, when we are approaching his work, we need to be open to that dimension in them and kind of acknowledge whatever the texts ignite in us, even if we think that we don't sort of intellectually understand them very well. You know, I have studied them you know, dozens of times with different groups in many situations, and every time the conversation goes in a different direction, because they have a different effect upon every every person, and therefore upon every group.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, for your answers. It was very interesting uh, speaking about Ibn Erbi. I mean, he was a... a I've known Ibn Erbi but never uh, spoke or actually studied or listened about his works uh, in detail. And thank you very much for, for your insight and answering our questions and for your time. Thank you. So this was um, Jane Clark who, you know, I had a really good and interesting um you know discussion about uh who studied engineering and physics at undergraduate level started studying ibn Erbi in 1977 masters in medieval islamic thought at the university of oxford i mean um she had a very deep understanding of his works and you know i personally have learned a lot from her um thank you for that um I as I were just mentioning before we had our guest about um uh you know a very important figure in our community which is the first caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um Hazrat Mizza Nuruddin Ahmed um who is uh you know also a very well known you know, before his work uh be- before him being uh, a khalifa of the time or a caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community a successor of Hazrat Meza Ghulam Muhammad, the promised messiah um, you know he was a, a physician a royal physician actually to Maharaja of Jammu Kashmir um, he was born in the 1841 in a, a village of Abhira which is Punjab, India and it was not just a local uh, a person but a global seeker of knowledge very knowledgeable person you know many scholars uh, outside the fold of Ahmadiyyad as well you know agree with his amazing works that he has done now the promised messiah has also you know uh, mentioned about him and his works um, and he really praised him as well um, and afterwards he became a, the first caliph and Ibrahim, As as i said Ibn Arbis uh, you know, uh, actually mentioned about him, and he basically f- saw a he foresaw a special minister of the Promised One, the Promised One being the Promised Messiah, the Ghulam and said that he will be Hafiz of Quran, which means he would be he would have learned the whole Quran. When we mention when we say that someone is Hafiz, it means someone has you know uh, memorized the entire Quran. Uh, he would be speaking Arabic um and uh, you know he will be fulfilling basically the prophecy of uh, of of a caliph as well so um you know he mentioned about uh, not only the promised messiah but also um that he will have a great scholar um as one of his followers and we know him as uh, Hazrat Mirza Nuruddin um you know for Whoever is listening to to me, you know, they can read about the Ahmadi community and then the promised Messiah, and also about um, his first caliph. Now, um, the another thing that I want to mention is the Muslim world um, at the at the time of uh, Ibn Arbi, um and and the medieval era was at the forefront of a scientific, philosophical, and artistic thought. Uh, you know that. There was a time, a golden age, um, just after the dark ages where, you know, many Muslim scholars actually contributed to, you know, the sciences, the things that we have nowadays. um, That actually comes from many Muslim scholars, which we might not find in the history books or English history books, but we'll find it in, in Arabic history books. And it's very interesting to learn about that age because that's the golden age where many scholars actually, you know, designed the future for us. Many things that we have, um, you know, nowadays and use we, we use, we would never have had these things if these scholars never existed. Um, and actually we have spoken about all the scholars that have, you know, that contributed to To the inventions that were made that we still use to this day uh, in a show that we also have in Voice of Islam which is called the Science Hour and in this hour we speak about um, you know science and the contributions of science and what relationship that has with Islam as well Um, so I would you know uh, advise the listener to uh, you know visit our website, voiceofislam.co.uk. Uh, that is the official website. When you go to the website, you can, uh, you know, go back to one of our shows. Um, and and if you have SoundCloud, you can listen to the previous shows as well. Uh, but also, you can always, you know, give us a call on uh, the number 20 That is 020 um 8778 and also we are very active on Voice of Islam UK Um, you can visit um, in any um, platform uh, where you can type in Voice of Islam UK and you'll find us there as well. We are actually um, asking a question um, to our uh, listeners which is um, this is on um, Voice of Islam, uh, this is a Voice of Islam Instagram story where we have asked are you trying to cut down on ultra processed foods this was for previous hour just to for listeners who have you know stayed with us for the second hour as well many people have said yes which is very very good um, this is they have 83% of the people have said yes and 17% who were I think uh, honest they have said uh, no but you know most of the people who have answered yes they probably have made a change to their life uh, maybe i could uh, be one of them as well but uh, i haven't got rid of ultra fossil food so i would be among the no people so going back to our um you know topic of ibn Arabi, um it's 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 impossible for me or uh, you know to to discuss about his life in just one hour i think you need at least two, three hours to uh, speak about Ibn Arbi. But um, from his works, we can see that the works um, are far too profound and philosophical for uh, this hour to speak. And, and it's very clear, of course, uh, and um, the influence that he had is a continuously growing and that he was indeed a man of God. We can learn from his works that the teachings that he has uh, taught us through his books, he was a man of God and to whom we owe much of our understanding of Islam and Quran. And you, when you want to understand a religion, God Almighty helps you uh, to an extent that he will lead you towards him. But if you want to understand something in detail, when you already have stepped into it or when you have accepted Islam Uh, therefore to understand any religion you need to uh, read or listen to the scholars um, or what the previous scholars have said so in order to learn about Islam uh, I would first of all advise you to read the Quran and you will find true God in his book but when you then have, you know, entered the fold of Islam, and you read the writings of his uh, godly person, then I would also suggest the listeners to re- read the writings of Hazrat Mizaqulam, the Promised Messiah, and you will definitely find the wisdom of Islam in his writings as well. I would like to thank Nadia Anwar and Tehree Muzamil, who are the producers of this hour, and also I want to thank Asadullah Mohan, the tech um guy so thank you very much for uh, your contribution